You're listening to Health Center in the Catskills on WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains. When my husband had a massive stroke on Christmas night, I knew that we were on a train that would be hard to get off of. But we had had many conversations about his end-of-life wishes, so I, I was really prepared to advocate for comfort care once we knew the extent of his brain injury. I was clear with the medical team that I was his health care proxy. I knew his wishes, and I shared these wishes with them and said he was to be a DNR, or do not resuscitate. Nonetheless... I was persuaded by a physician who was an interventional neurologist and referred to himself as the plumber to allow him to try to remove the large clot that was lodged at the bifurcation of a major brain artery uh, in my husband. And it actually made matters worse. The next thing I knew, my husband was being tube fed and... I knew I had to get him off this train, and I had to fight like hell to do so, unfortunately. But I'm a nurse. I know the system. I know its trains. And most of the time, I know what has to happen to get off a train. But not everyone knows how to do this. And we shouldn't underestimate the opportunities that the healthcare system has to do aggressive medical treatment when that's not really what somebody may want. In March of this year, New York Times journalist Paula Spann wrote about the persistence of aggressive medical treatment at the end of life, despite efforts to allow people to die a natural death when cures and semi-independent functioning, independent functioning are futile. Paula writes for the New York Times about aging and caregiving issues, and it's my pleasure to welcome Paula Spann to Health Center in the Catskills. Paula, thank you so much for joining me today. Really happy to be with you, Diana. That's such a horrifying story, mm. and yet it's not uncommon. Yeah, it is. Un, it is really is not uncommon. And the many times that I've shared it with friends, they've said, "But if you had those challenges and had to fight with the system, but were able to be, you know, fairly successful in advocating for your husband, how are the rest of us supposed to do that?" So I think this conversation is a really important one to have. So tell us though why you wrote about this story on aggressive medical uh, treatment. Well, the the column that I write. It's called The New Old Age, and it's about aging and caregiving. And so we write about end-of-life care quite often. And as new information uh, becomes available, as certain kinds of efforts happen, like the adoption of pulsed and most forms that we can talk more about, um, and when there is legislation for aid in dying. So it's, it's a familiar topic for me. And I, I, I do read all these medical journals and was uh, kind of astonished to come across this study in, the, in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, showing that despite just literally decades of attempts to de-intensify end-of-life care, to give people more control, to get people off what you call that train or what sometimes I call this conveyor belt. Um, 
despite all of that, I looked at this study, and it was of, of older people with metastatic cancer, cancer that has spread, the kind of cancer that doesn't get better usually. Um, they were quite elderly. They were late 70s, 150,000 people, and more than half of them were still getting aggressive care at end of life. And it was even higher for people that lived in nursing homes, which makes no sense at all, because people in nursing homes are by definition pretty much sicker and less likely to recover. So um, I looked at this and thought, holy moly, this is still going on at such a great extent um, that I thought readers would be interested in it. And I started making phone calls. So, So let's talk about what we mean by aggressive medical treatment. Um, I don't know any formal definition. In this, in this case, it was defined by the researchers, but in general, it just means doing treatments that are not going to be beneficial to the patient. They're not going to extend life, or if they do, it's very briefly, and they don't increase comfort. They're just things that happen because the medical system can do it. So, for example, having somebody in an ICU who is not likely to recover. It's not comfortable, it's hugely expensive, it's difficult for the family. Why does that happen? Um, well, because there is an ICU and they can put people in it. <laughs> and, um, but also because our whole system is geared towards doing everything. And there are people that want that. There are patients and families that say, do everything, don't stop anything. But most older people uh, will express uh, a reluctance to go flat out like that. They might want to try something and see if it works, but if it doesn't, if it's clear that this is a terminal illness, um, most people do not want extraordinary measures, and yet they keep happening uh, because that's just the way the culture of hospitals works, the culture of medicine. As, as you found out, it's actually harder to stop it than to just go along with it. And let me give a, another dimension to what I see as aggressive medical treatment, and that is that there's a treatment out there that maybe there's a long shot for a cure. Um, maybe there's a long shot that the person will uh, regain some functioning, et cetera, and, and a higher quality of life. But the odds aren't in their favor, and uh, the system doesn't know the person's wishes. So there may be a point at which to me, longevity is not what's important. What's important is the quality of my living. And so yes. I might have a terminal cancer or metastasis and decide that I'm not going to take that treatment that maybe has a 10% chance of improving my odds because I don't want the side effects of what, it's gonna, what I'm going to feel like from, uh, as I go through this treatment. And, 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 and so to do that, you have to know what somebody's goals are. Uh, right. And I don't think we, well, we don't ask that very often in healthcare. Well, the people that are good at that are called palliative care yes, doctors and you. specialists. Yeah. And most hospitals, most <laughs> hospitals of, of considerable size will have the palliative care team. It's hard to access when you're not in the hospital. And of course, when you are nearing the end of your life, most people don't want to be in a hospital. They want to be at home yes. with their families and having the best quality of life they can for their last few weeks and months. Um, but, uh, but aggressive care 
stopping aggressive care requires a number of conversations. One is between the patient and the family, and another is between the patient, the family, and the healthcare team. Uh, and they're both hard to do, and we're not particularly well trained at it. Um, but but it does make things simpler if there's an advanced directive that the family can point to. I mean, I've done this with family members, been able to say, see, she wrote this, she didn't want this. Um, and also these um, newer uh, forms are actually medical uh, directions for people with serious life-limiting illnesses that are called a post physician order for life-sustaining treatment, or in some states they're called a most or a most. I forget what New York calls mm -hmm. them. Um, but they, they are orders that you and your doctor, you the patient and the doctor, fill out together that say things like, yes, I might want antibiotics if I have pneumonia. No, I don't want to be on a ventilator or a feeding tube. Uh, and you can discuss this and decide. But in the end, I have to say, whatever um, attempts people make to write these down and to record these, um, if you're in an emergency room and things are chaotic, doctors are not going to go leafing through your advanced care directive, if you even have it. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to turn to the nearest relative and say, what do you want us to do? And uh, the, the best way to ensure that you can avoid this aggressive care if you don't want it is to make sure that any relative that might be there with you knows to say no yes. more often than yes. And in fact, um, when I was doing my own healthcare proxy, I, I had a have a colleague who this is what she does. Um, she she works with people and end of life choices, and she advised me. But I I was not doing a most or a post. I, I was doing a healthcare proxy form, and mm -hmm. and in terms of putting down what I wanted or didn't want, she said, "Don't get specific because if your healthcare proxy really knows your wishes, they're going to be able to make their way through the nuances that a form can't capture um and and you don't want to lock you know block, lock somebody into to something that may be more nuanced than you can put down in writing i also want to share that when my husband when i came in and saw that he was being too fed uh. I, I was furious now i had talked to this neurologist about um that when when we did the dnr i said i want a palliative care consult and uh -huh. he said oh we're the, we're not there yet well my husband oh. could not speak he was barely conscious he was paralyzed on his right side and it, it's like well when would you call a period he did not call it i said to him you don't have to call in palliative care just at the end of life. And he said, well, you're right. He never called in the consult. So the next day, I had to go home and get things set up and take care of some business at home. And I came back to the hospital feeling like I couldn't leave his side for fear of what would happen because I right. saw them tube feeding him. And I said, I want a palliative care consult now. And a wonderful palliative care nurse practitioner came up and had a really deep conversation with me about his wishes, about mm -hmm. what needed to happen next, and helped to sort of navigate um, in this sort of sorting out what do you want, what do you not want, and how can we support what his wishes were, what your wishes are. And I, I, I just want to reinforce that um, many physicians do not embrace palliative care still and so one of the things are, to do is to insist on it 
Yeah. You will hear this about hospice, too. Oh, we're not there yet. Yes, yes. Because I think, you know, our, our, our medical system is set up to see death as failure as opposed to death as inevitable. Yeah. Immortality is not one of our options. Yeah. We will die. And the, the idea that a, a patient is going to die on, on their watch can be unbearable. So I've had family members also say, shouldn't we call hospice now when someone was clearly not going to get better? Oh, we're not there yet. No, yeah. yes, you are. Yes. If you yes. have a terminal illness that is likely to end your life within six months, you are there. You qualify for hospice and you should have it and you shouldn't let people talk you out of it because they think it makes them look bad. Um, yeah. it, it can, it really can make your blood boil. Like when should medicine be most gentle, most calm, most attuned to what people want, least likely to be doing heroic runs down the corridor with EMTs? When should, when should we be most attuned to something profound happening? I think it's at the end of life. Yeah. And yet that, that is when the cavalry often comes crashing in. Yeah. Now, um, if I could just yeah. talk about this study a, a minute, because I yeah. think your readers would find it interesting. So this was older people with metastatic cancer. They are not going to get better. And this study is 150,000 people. What happened to them in the last 30 days of their lives, the last month of their lives? What happened? Well, the researchers defined aggressive care here as getting cancer treatment, getting chemo or radiation, um, going into an ICU, going to the emergency room more than once, being hospitalized, not getting enrolled in hospice until the last three days of life and dying in the hospital. That was how aggressive care was defined for this cohort of 150 older people. Um, and 58% of them, if they were not in a nursing home, got at least one of those things done to them. Mm -hmm. And if they were in a nursing home, 64%. And when I talk to bioethicists about this, you know, people who have been in the field for decades, they, they just sighed and just said, this, this is shocking and sobering. Um, it, it just keeps happening. Um, and it's, um, it, it requires great will by a family uh, and great unity, too, because uh, probably your listeners are familiar with that scenario. Someone's in an ICU, someone's in a hospital, an elder person, um, very ill, and the doctors and the family that's nearby are saying, okay, comfort care. We want to keep this person comfortable. We want to take him or her home if we can. And then somebody who lives in Colorado <laughs> or, yes. or yes. Seattle you know, and hasn't yes. been home much, comes winging in and say, no, 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 we can't do that. We have to try to save her. And everybody just thinks, oh, God, no. Um, so there's really no substitute for for us talking to our healthcare proxy, our family members, all of them, the ones that are near and the ones that aren't. And, uh, you know, I've heard people phrase it like this. I will come back and haunt you if you keep me alive for no purpose and try all of this uh, yeah. Try the vent, try the feeding tube, have all these IVs. Please just let me slip away with good pain management from hospice, which pretty much knows how to do that. Um, yeah. That's what most, I think most people say they want. And so it's kind of horrifying how few get it. Yeah. 
So you also write in this article about the conversations that do or do not happen. Uh, you talked earlier about this, I, I said train, you said conveyor belt. Either way, it's it's sort of this movement through a system that's sort of sort of on its own track and can't get off that track. And so mm-hmm. there are some good, there's been a lot of effort in medical education to teach physicians about how to have these conversations. And, yeah. and you, but still we know there's a challenge to that. But you also point out that sometimes the family members just can't embrace it. They feel like, which was interesting to me, I hadn't thought about this. You write about how they, they think my family member is going to be the exception. Right. Can you talk a little bit about these conversations and the idea of one of the issues has been, well, you don't want to take hope away. Well, what does hope mean in these situations? Can you right. talk a little bit about these conversations? Well, um, yes, you're right that there's been a, there's been a lot of emphasis on trying to improve communication uh, because I think that initially um, people who do end of life care were thinking, oh, we're just not phrasing it correctly. We're not communicating well. People don't understand what we're trying to tell them, and so there was a lot of emphasis on scripts and how you explain things. But it turns out, and there is, a, you know, there are still people who are bad at communicating or are bad at communicating in a way that people can understand. But then there's also this kind of inability to accept what you're told. It's not that you don't understand. It's that you can't take the next step and think, oh, this applies to our mother or our father. So I've had doctors, and doctors will tell you about this. Every time you write about end of life, there will be, I, I can enable comments on my column. Uh, in the time. So mm-hmm. hundreds of people will write in and mm-hmm. the, a lot of family members will say, these doctors won't tell us the truth. These doctors lie. These doctors just want to keep mm-hmm. billing us. And then you have doctors writing in and saying, oh, please, we, tr- we work so hard and they just won't hear us. Mm-hmm. Meaning, for example, that the doctor can say the, the likelihood that you can survive this and go home is 5%. And they tell me that families will say, oh, thank God, I thought it was hopeless. Uh, Or uh, things like um, the family understands that generally this condition, this illness, whatever it is, is not survivable. It doesn't have good quality of life. People will die. But that's true for other people, not not for our person. mm. Our person's a fighter. Our person's always beaten the odds. We don't want to give up. And... um, the idea that death means giving up yes. as, if, as if the other option was, no, yes. no death, yes. you'll be the first. Yes. Um, it's hard to know how to address that. These are not necessarily logical reactions. These are emotional reactions, and I think we can understand them. And yet, I think if people understood that everything you do, every medical thing you do, Every procedure, every drug, every aspirin, every IV line has the possibility of helping and the possibility of causing problems, causing pain, causing suffering, and not actually having a benefit. And if people understood that there's no such thing as just the good news, that anything you try also can backfire and can cause problems, maybe then we would all be able to look at this a little more realistically. In my case, I have helped 
three of my family members through to the end, both my parents and my mm-hmm. sister. Mm-hmm. Um, in each case, we were able to avoid this uh, merry-go-round. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I was, like, like you, I was there every yeah. minute to yeah. make sure that nothing got... I, I didn't want what happened to you. You come in one day, you think you've worked it all out, and there's a feeding tube or there is a ventilator or something else that's going to not prolong good quality of life. It just was a check on a on a list. I, I also think that what would be helpful is for people to family members to actually ask more questions and i know sometimes in the moment it's hard to think of this but it's also i I wish healthcare providers particularly physicians would offer more detail on okay here are the options and here is here is what the impact will be with each option and or could be with each option Mm. and and what is the risk what what's what's what are the odds that the person will improve and not in relative terms, but in absolute terms. Because sometimes, you know, you'll you'll f- find a physician saying, "Well, there is a fifty percent reduction in yeah. in uh, people uh, uh, dying from this treatment," and yet what they're talking about is um, that you know the different. Uh, I'm sorry that this treatment 50% of the time is effective in extending life. Well, maybe it only has a 5% chance of extending life. And so the 50% reduction is a um, 2.5% chance. And so uh, when you think about the real numbers of what it means, I tell people, ask them, well, if 100 people had this, how many would survive or have certain side effects? If 100 people didn't have it, how many people? And and so... Surviving longer meaning what? You know, a lot of very expensive drugs extend life for two weeks or three weeks. It's enough to show up uh, in a clinical trial, but it's not something that most people want is more than two or three more weeks in which you are bed bound. Um, it's, It's interesting as a research proposition, but it doesn't clinically, it doesn't do much for a patient at the end of life. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think asking those questions is makes sense. But I also would just like to tell listeners that the word hospice, the word hospice in itself, um, and also the word palliative care, but hospice is one that people know more. It's kind of a magic amulet in which it lets the healthcare team know, and you say, I think we're ready for hospice. And if they don't come back with, oh, we're not there yet, and you, you have to say, yes, I think we are. Yes. Will you write the orders or do I have to find somebody else? When you say hospice, that means they understand that you, the family, and the patient understand that the end is very close, that you're not going to have a miracle cure. Um, What you you are likely to have is a decline. It could be slow. It could be fast. You need pain management. You need comfort care. But you're not asking them to do their heroic miraculous thing you understand the situation and when you say hospice people have a different response they think oh we don't have to do all that stuff they understand that we're not talking about a situation in which their person even if they survive ever has good quality of life again we are in a different phase now and i i really urge people to just that as soon as you are seeing that someone is not likely to get better anytime soon is to say hospice. If you're wrong, if everybody's wrong, if people pull through, you can stop hospice and get off of it and go back on it whenever you need to. 
you're not um, giving up your options. It just means we understand where we are now. And if you understand where we are now, then we can avoid a lot of the high-intensity, high-expense interventions that really will not benefit this person. And often actually shorten life more than doing nothing. And I think we've got some research on that. So, yes, yeah. yes. Hospice patients live longer. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, uh, and, and it is true that hospice these days is stressed like every part yeah. of the healthcare yeah. system um, for, you know, they're understaffed. And yeah. that's, you know, it's a terrible thing when you have to wait to be enrolled in yeah. hospice. And yeah. I know there are places where that's true. Yeah. But in general, um, I think hospice still does quite a good job of helping people through. It's not 24-hour care. People need to understand that you still need either family or paid helpers there to be with the person who's dying. The hospice people provide a lot of services, but they're not there around the clock. But they are the specialists in end-of-life like other kinds of healthcare teams are specialists in cardiology or neurology. And that's Paula Spann. She writes a column, The New Old Age, for the New York Times. It's a fabulous column. I want to tell people, go read that. We are an aging county, and anybody, you know, most of the listeners here either have aging parents or are aging themselves, and it's a really important column. And I want to thank you, Paula Spann, for coming on to Health Center and the Catskills today for this important discussion. Thank you. Happy to be with you, Diana. Take care. You too. Bye. Yeah. Well, I'm Diana Mason. You've been listening to Health Center in the Catskills on WIOX Community Radio. Have a great day.